We're speaking today with Bill Zuckerman, the founder and former head of a group of day nurseries operating in London and in the Southeast. Bill, selecting the right nursery for young children can be a challenge for any parent. But before I ask you about navigating preschool education in the London area, I'd love to ask you about your own journey from a consulting partner at Ernst & Young to head of a group of nurseries. What attracted you to the business? Well, um, I've had three different careers, actually. My first career was in the, as an academic. And um, I've specialized in politics, law, and defense. And my master's thesis was on Wagner and Wagner's anti-Semitism. And I was working on a PhD thesis um, on the use of Wagner by the Nazis as propaganda when I um, was offered a position at the Royal Institute of International Affairs in East-West German relations and decided that's what I wanted to do. So I didn't finish my PhD. Um, and I worked in academia for two years. And I suppose to some extent, um, mindful of Kissinger's comments that academics are so petty because the stakes are so small, I decided that um, academia really wasn't where I wanted to be and I wanted to work somewhere where I could make a real difference to the existence of, of organizations. And management consulting seems like the ideal move. So I joined a small, then small group, which later became very large and um, now has sold out to Deloitte's, but Monitor Group was my first consultancy position. And um, from Monitor, I went to Booz Allen. From Booz Allen, I set up my own firm, which specialized in strategy consulting to manufacturers of power generation equipment. And from there, I was headhunted into Ernst & Young, where I headed up there, was, we set up an internal unit working between corporate finance and consulting to do deal creation, post-merger integration, um, uh, work on due diligence and valuations, um, plus general strategy. And that was my first role at Ernst & Young. My second was as one of the few partners in what was called the Global Client Consulting Group. So I had a responsibility for some of the firm's largest clients in the world from a consulting point of view. And those included Eli Lilly, um, ABB, and um, Motorola uh, and Exxon Chemicals in particular. And then in 2000, it was announced, um, Ernst & Young made a very sensible decision to exit the consulting business due to SEC pressure for how can you be a consultant and an, and an accountant at the same time and, and be independent, especially when the consultancy fees were far higher than the accounting fees. Um, so they made the right decision, and in the wake of Anderson's very public divorce between consulting and, and um, accountancy, um, they made the decision and decided to implement it very quickly. But they decided to sell the consulting business to Capgemini. And for me, that was tantamount to selling an architect's firm to uh, a plumbing firm. And there was such a discrepancy between the objectives of the two organizations that I really didn't want to join it. And um, I received a letter from the managing partner that said, 
on such and such a date, you will be retired from the partnership and you'll be sent a, an employment contract with um, uh, Capgemini. Uh, and I responded saying, I'm very much looking forward to my retirement. Thank you. Um, and uh, the truth is with that, that I think there are less than four people out of 800 in the UK who are still employed by Capgemini today. And of course, Capgemini dropped the name Ernst & Young, um, and Ernst & Young has gone back into consulting again. So, What goes around comes around. Absolutely. So then I sat there, and I had done a very small project for a group of children's nurseries. And I decided I've spent my life advising companies how to improve their bottom lines, how to um, be more efficient in the way they operated, how to strive for excellence in their performance. And I decided, well, I, rather than tell people how to do it, why don't I just prove that I can do it myself? So I had done this work in nurseries. I looked at the sector, going back to my roots as an academic, I've always believed in education and the value of education. Um, and I decided that there was a serious need in the UK for nurseries that were day nurseries in particular that, that were more than babysitting services which is what most of the nurseries in the uk are um, and basically i went back to all of the theoretical literature on child development and how children learn and what engages their interests and i um, had quite a lot of conversations with two professors at um, harvard school of education and came up with the overall plan mm -hmm. um, the idea behind the nurseries that I've set up is how do you maximize a child's potential based on their needs, talents, abilities, and interests? Now, needs are physical and emotional needs, psychological needs, basic needs. Talents I define as innate skills that a child is born with. They have a predisposition in certain areas towards certain types of activities, towards certain types of ways of thinking, um, and those are talents. Abilities are skills which a child can learn. So they learn either through imitation or they learn through um, engaging or they learn through exploration. Um, and um, interests are clearly anything that a child demonstrates prolonged focus on. If you can focus on those four things with each individual child in a way that's meaningful for that child, you can give the child the best possible start for education in life. Um, I don't believe <clears throat> in lots of structured learning for early years children. I believe that lots of structured learning actually does work for some children who need a regime and who need a lot of structure. But for other children, it run, you run the risk of turning them off from education in the long term um, and frustrating them and getting them to a place where they think they can't do it and they don't know how to do things. So the curriculum that I developed is very much about an individual curriculum for each child based on the needs, talents, abilities and interests. And that was really how I um, came to the nursery sector. I then set up my, opened my first nursery in 2005, and I raised finance in 2006 to be able to expand the group, 
and I sold my share in the group that I set up uh, last year when we had nine nurseries. Um, we were 50% of the nurseries were either graded outstanding or outstanding, good with outstanding attributes by offset, which is very unusual for a multiple site group. Um, and uh, we were also, which is nice for the shareholders, the in the top three of profitability by any measure for nursery groups in the UK. And that's really how I came into, into the nursery sector. It's quite a journey. Um, I want to, to pick up on um, some of the things that you were talking uh, about, what, what makes um, a good uh, nursery school. And um, from the parents' perspective, selecting, selecting the right nursery for young children can really seem like a challenge. Um, and it's safe to say that, you know, all parents want the best nursery for their children, but knowing uh, what's the best nursery is easier said than, than done. Um, and you mentioned some of these very important uh, criteria, uh, size, you know, philosophy, uh, and others, but it's from our perspective as parents, it can be very confusing. If you were acting as a consultant to parents starting the nursery selection process in London, how would you advise them? Well, there is a process that you need to go through for shortlisting before you start looking at nurseries. And that's relatively simple. Um, I would say that process is two steps. It's first to check the local reputation of your nurseries. That is probably the single most important factor in making a decision about which nursery to in. Talk to other parents in the local area, find out which are the good nurseries, find out which are the nurseries that are hard to get into, um, find out the nurseries that have the reputation for being innovative, for being engaging. Um, that's the first thing. So make your shortlist from that. Then step two is go to Ofsted's website and look at the last report from the nursery. And um, once you've looked at enough Ofsted reports, you will start to learn to understand the language that's used and to be able to read between the lines. But um, a nursery, uh, um, you know, there are times that Ofsted damns by faint praise and there are times that Ofsted gives good performance uh, reviews, but actually in the fine print, there are a few things that would cause me concern. So read the Ofsted report carefully, but do recognize very, very importantly that Ofsted visit a nursery on one day and they can only report on what they observe on the day. So it may be that they visited on a particularly bad day and you had a particularly harsh reviewer. So it may be that the Ofsted report isn't a true reflection of what the parents think of the nursery. But it, as long as you're talking to the local community and the local parents, then you've got both sides of the story and you, you make up your decision on that basis. Then you've got a short list. So with your short list, um, and I'm afraid, uh, actually going back before my first step, um, the one thing that expats in the UK find very difficult is that, although it's similar to the situation in New York, is that you have to be thinking about a nursery from the time your child is born. Um, 
for the simple reason that nurseries become very popular when they get a reputation, particularly for getting children into different kinds of schools. So getting, my advice to parents is any nursery that has a good reputation, register your child as soon as you can. You may have to pay 50, 70 pounds registration fee, which is non-refundable usually. Just pay it, get your child on the list. Then you can make your decisions. There are too many parents who have been in nurseries uh, that I have run, which, and, and you know, I've actually made certain that one of the things that the nursery provided was a, a sort of consulting service to parents on choosing schools and how to get into schools. Um, but, uh, you know, there are too many expats who just don't understand the British system. And because children start being educated much younger in the UK than in almost any other country in the world, it is really important to get on the right bandwagon early enough. Otherwise, you can find yourself with very few options. So um, do your homework, read the offset reports and register. That's the first stage of the process. Once you're registered, uh, then you need to set up appointments with every one of the nurseries that you are considering. And this is the most important step, is actually performing a nursery visit. When you do the nursery visit, there are a number of questions you have to ask yourself. Um, <clears throat> the most important thing you should be watching on your visit is what the children in the nursery look like in the sense of, are they engaged? Are they happy? Are they stimulated? Are they tired? Are they bored? Are they crying? Um, all of those will tell you something. And a child in a nursery that's meeting its needs should be only happy, engaged, sleeping, um, but certainly not distressed and certainly not bored. And that's very, very important. Related to that is looking at the interaction between staff and the children. So um, I did, for, for my eldest daughter, because it was before I'd opened my first nursery, I did a show round in an, a nursery, which we walked into a baby room and there were three members of staff in the corner having a chat about what they did at the weekend. And nine um, very, very bored, babies crying their heads off with no one looking after them. Uh, and I thought to myself, if this is what a show round is like, what is the nursery like when, I, when a parent's not here? So it's very important to watch the interactions. Are the staff engaging with the children in a meaningful way? Are they reacting to the children? Are they listening to the children? Are they um, trying to engage the children in an activity that the children will find interesting and fun? Very, very, very important. Um, who, finding out from the person who's giving you the tour what the ethos of the nursery is and what makes it different is very, very important. Um, alarm bells should go off if the person who is giving you the show round isn't the manager or the deputy manager of the nursery. Anyone else, why isn't the person who's in charge doing the show round because they're the ones that should be answering the questions about how the nurseries run. And if it's a group of nurseries and you get someone from head office doing the show round, that person isn't going to be there to look after your child. So make sure you, you, you see the right person on the show round. And when you 
get the opportunity to ask them, ask them honestly, what is the ethos of the nursery um, and what makes them different? And if, if you get answers like, well, we have a loving environment and we care for the children, all our staff like children and they're all qualified, um, that's, that tells you nothing. Um, every nursery should be like that. What makes a difference in nurseries is our nurseries, the, the nurseries that I've built and, and managed are nurseries where we hired qualified teachers for specialist areas of the curriculum. So that covers um, music, performing arts, dance, drama, um, art. And for me, an art teacher in a nursery has to not only be able to work with children on the correct pencil grip and help them to turn their visions into reality in terms of creating pieces of art that are meaningful for the child, um, also has to know something about art history so that they can actually start exposing children to Turner and to Caravaggio and to Greek architecture and Roman architecture and Egyptian gods and world culture. Um, this is, for me, fundamentally a part of what early years education is, is, is about, because you've got children who are sponges up to the age of, of six or seven, where lots of stuff goes in. They may not remember all of it, and there, there should be no expectation that a child will remember anything in particular. But by giving them exposure to lots and lots and lots of different areas of world culture, and in that I include um, Zimbabwean Imbira music. And, and um, um, the only thing I, I didn't have in the nurseries was pop music. And the argument for that is that pop music is something that children are exposed to everywhere else all the time. And I really wanted to focus on things that some children might not actually get an opportunity to have exposure to. So classical music is fundamental, jazz, world music, um, musicals, acting. Um, one, of, one of the things that I'm proudest of that I've done is with 170 children is got them to compose their own opera. Now, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we, what was this opera about, Bill? Uh, it was A Midsummer Night's Dream, and we basically took the children through um, a very high-level description of Shakespeare's play. And who the what names of the characters were and what the characters did um, very very superficially then we asked the children because we wanted them to create this and we wanted them to own it we asked them so what would if you were this character what would you say what would you do and the children came up with their own ideas and we captured everything that they said and then that was turned into the libretto for an opera then the children worked with the music teacher in each nursery to sit down and actually say, well, what kind of music goes with this? Should it be happy? Should it be sad? And in some nurseries, the music teachers used their own um, skills to compose music um, with the children. In other nurseries, music teachers adapted existing music, um, all out of copyright, of course. Um, and uh, then the third stage was to work with the art teachers to design scenery, sets, and costumes. And when we premiered um, our version of A Midsummer Night's Dream Theatre at, at, at the Unicorn Theatre in, in London, 
with 170 children and 400 parents in the audience, I was biting my nails because you've got 173 to five-year-olds who very, very easily could become distressed, could uh, be, have stage fright, and all kinds of things could go wrong on the day. And what was amazing, because these children actually knew the story because they wrote it. It's their characters, it's their imagination. There wasn't one tear, not one distressed child, and they all came out and performed amazingly. And it's, it's the ability to get into the creative process of a child and bring them along to produce something that's uniquely theirs, which is a fundamental part of creating a nursery. So those are the kind of things that I would look for in terms of something very special. Um, all of my nurseries always had um, webcams. Now, a lot of nurseries have CCTV for, which is re recorded internally in case an incident happens and they need to do an investigation. They have that, but parents can't get access to that information. My philosophy on webcams was if you have webcams in the nursery and allow parents through a very secure platform to go online and actually see their children during the time of day, you, you're telling parents actually, we have nothing to hide. You know, you can look anytime at the nursery, see what your child's doing. Furthermore, if you have grandparents in Australia who don't have the ability to come to a child's performance, you can give them the opportunity to log in. Um, and we controlled absolutely anyone who got access to the webcams, but um, people from overseas or, or parents on business trips could log in and then remotely watch what their child was doing. And parents love that. Uh, that would be a huge a benefit for Tanager listeners. Yes. Uh, <laughs> most, most of whom have overseas grandparents and often are on business trips. So. Absolutely. That's a really exciting um, idea. Now, um, other key things to look for are the appearance of the nursery. Um, and this is more psychological than anything, but we'll tell you a lot. If you look in each room that you visit and see the, where the children's folders are, this is the information that's kept on the children. If they look untidy, if it looks like a pile of things that people are trying to catch up on, um, alarm bells should go off. Um, ask if you can have a look at a, a sample folder. They should have a sample folder which is not related to any specific child because a nursery would by right tell you you can't look at a child's folder. But if you could see a sample folder they use for training purposes to get an idea of what they consider a good folder because this is a document that you as a parent will be looking at from time to time when you come into parents' evenings and have a chat with the teachers in the nursery and the staff in the nursery. Um, and it's very important that you are comfortable that they are really getting a sense of each child as an individual. Look for things that are very nondescript. If there are observations made on a child that, um, uh, for example, Johnny played in the sand today, um, he enjoyed it. That to me is a terrible observation um, because it just raises a lot of questions that I want answered. I want to know, did Johnny choose to play in the sand or was this an organized activity by someone else? Um, when he was playing in the hand, in the sand, what was he doing? Was he using his hands? Was he using 
um, toys? Was he using a, a pencil? Um, how was he? How was he interacting with the sand? Was he using um, what kind of motor skills was he demonstrating? And he enjoyed it. It's very easy to assume a child is enjoying something when you don't actually have the evidence to prove that, especially when a child is too young to communicate whether they're enjoying something or not. Um, if a child is smiling, you should record that the child is smiling. If the child is engaged and focused on it, you should record that. But to say that a child enjoys something because they're smiling, they could actually be smiling because the person they're spending time with, either their friend or the adult who's working with them, that they like that person. But they might be bored out of their minds with the activity. So um, it's very important that you look, have a look at the records to try and see um, the quality of uh, what is being done there. Um, and then related to the appearance, um, do you see lot? There should be lots and lots of words all over the nursery in big letters um, so that the children can see them and start getting comfortable with words. Um, but if do you notice any of these words with misspellings in them? Because if they have misspellings um, and nursery staff are notoriously bad at spelling words like stationary um, or using the wrong stationary, uh, that should send alarm bells off because these are the people who are going to be demonstrating language and linguistics to your children. Um, is there easy access for the children to equipment? Are there things for the children to play with at child height that they can just go to a shelf and pull a toy off or pull a book off uh, without having to ask someone for assistance? Um, very, very important. Um, is there water in every single room so that the children can keep hydrated? It's really, really important. And, and if you notice smells of younger children who, who need nappy changes, um, you know, our children, do they smell like they need, need a nappy change and look distressed? Has anyone noticed that this child needs a nappy change? These, these are the kind of important things from an appearance point of view. And then the overall smells in the nursery as well. Is it clean, hygienic? Um, and do the staff look happy? Do they look like they actually enjoy what they're doing? It is so important in a nursery to have people working there who are doing it because their calling in life is to work with early years children, not because it was the only thing they could find and they didn't want to work at McDonald's. That's not a good reason for someone to work in a nursery. Um, and finally, um, um, not finally, a few more things actually. Um, safety, security. How safe and secure is the nursery? We had, uh, my nurseries have always had two entrance doors. One, because as a parent, if you arrive at an odd time, there may be no one in the front office to let you in. And out of respect for parents, we don't want parents standing outside in the cold and rain. So parents all have a key fob that will get them through the first door. But the second door, which is beyond which the children are, parents can't get through on their own. They have to have someone take them through. That way we have a way of making sure absolutely everyone who goes into the nursery. Then of course we had um, uh, very secure gates on our nurseries and um, webcams as well. So from a security point of view, and our vetting process was, was, was fundamental.
Um, Outlook, um, sorry, the outdoor space. What kind of outdoor space is provided for the children? Um, does it have age-appropriate equipment? Does it have um, does it have equipment? Is it just a an area for the children to run around? It'd be really things? tough in London. This issue of outdoor space. It is, and there are nurseries that have no outdoor space. But I would never operate a nursery without a large area of outdoor mm -hmm. space. And I would just I've passed up on so many sites over the years that didn't have suitable outdoor space. And the reason is it's very, very important for young children to be outside every single day, whatever the weather, uh, even in winter. And, you know, in, in Sweden, children in nurseries, babies in nurseries sleep outside in winter in prams for an hour, two hours every day in the cold. Uh, I'm not advocating that we do that, but children should go out in the cold. They should go out when it's rainy. They should get messy. They should have special, you should have staff in a nursery who want to take the children out to get muddy. Um, and parents need to be supportive of that and, and recognize by giving a change of clothes to, for the child to, to get messy in. Um, but outdoor space is absolutely critical. Um, I have mentioned the philosophy, the outlook of, of the person running the nursery, and, and, and that's uh, fundamental. The, the final thing really is um, to ask the person who's running the nursery, the percent of children who end up getting into the school of their choice. That's an important question. Um, and uh, one of the things that I feel very strongly the nursery has to help parents with is the whole complex mess of getting your child into a school because it is very complicated in Britain and there are different ways to get into different schools and um, different schools are looking for different things in children. Um, but also for the nursery to know your child well enough so that they can actually advise you to an extent, well, I know you really want your child to go to this school, but is it appropriate for your child for the following reasons? And you know, I've seen parents, very pushy parents, get their children into top schools, which are very, very academic schools, where the child really wasn't suited for the school. And in every instance, within three, four years, that child is withdrawn from the school and the child's very unhappy in the process. So it's really important to find the right environment for a child. And there's some schools that focus a lot more on academic achievement, some schools that focus more on sporting achievements, some schools that focus more on creative talents um, and are very relaxed about the academic performance of their children. Uh, so it's important to know that you get your child into the right kind of place. Okay. Um, I want to focus for a moment. So you've, you've found your, your perfect nursery and you have mentioned that it's important to register as soon as you possibly can but um you know i'm i'm thinking probably my favorite or or least favorite nursery school story of all is was that famous case back in new york in the late 90s um where a research analyst changed the stock recommendation to get his yes. kids into the 92nd Street Y preschool, which he described as harder than Harvard. So how tough is it here in the greater London area? Um, and are there anything uh, besides registering as soon as you can 
that parents can do to enhance the likelihood of being chosen by the nursery they choose? Um, the answer to is it bad like New York, um, unfortunately in some ways is yes. Um, London, particularly very popular nurseries and nurseries that are known to really engage well with children, have a limited number of spaces and as a result more and more parents want to get their children into those nurseries so those are the ones that you have to get your child on registered for early on um the you know my successful nurseries would typically have a full um anywhere from say 90 to 120 places in each nursery um, some of the children would come part-time so that you could have as many as 300 children on the register making up 100 places in the nursery and they would be full with a waiting list of 250 to 300 and I used to advise the managers of our nurseries to um, make sure they informed parents when they registered based on how the age of their child, what was the likelihood that they would get a place? Because I didn't want, you had to pay 70 pounds to register your child. And I didn't want people just giving a 70 pounds unless they were fully aware of the, the likelihood that they would have getting a place. And, and to be honest, in some of the nurseries, the answer was the likelihood is very low. And the only time a parent would get a place is if somebody moved abroad. Um, now, actually a lot of the parents that we had were expats working in, professional services and banking and in, 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 in legal professions, and you did have people moving. Um, the other thing that for, for my nurseries was very telling, early on, I noticed a very disturbing trend, which is that every month there were two or three children leaving the nursery. And I immediately spoke to parents to say, What's, why are you leaving? And what happens in London is, a couple will have their first child. They're living somewhere where they can afford. They've got a small flat. Their first child is born. Then mom gets pregnant a second time. It, where they're living isn't big enough, but they can't afford a bigger place where they live. So they have to move. So people tend to move out. And that accounted for about two to three children every month. Um, there's a very high turnover of people. And then of course, a lot of expats are only in the country for two or three years, and then they're leaving as well. So um, spaces do become available, and it is you know, probably very important to phone the nursery on a regular basis and just say, where am I on the list? What is regular? Um, you know, well... You don't want to call too much, you don't want to call too little. I'd say once a month okay. is, is probably reasonable. Um, and it's 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 just worth knowing where you are on, on um, the waiting list. Most what's very different to New York is I know in nurseries in New York children are assessed. Um, I don't know of nurseries in the UK where children are assessed, and I don't think Ofsted would approve children being assessed before going into a nursery. So in terms of your other question about preparation of the child, there's really nothing that you should do in terms of preparation. Um, the if the nursery is honest 
uh, and operates a good waiting list system, it will be on a first come first serve basis. So it's a question of when your child gets on the list. Um, and also a question of availability. If you want mornings for your child and they only have a space available in the afternoon, then they can't, even though there's, the nursery will have a space, they can't offer it to you um, because the space has to actually meet, meet the time that you want your child to attend. Um, and sometimes parents don't quite get that, that there may be some vacancies in the nursery, but yet they can't get a place. Is it a good strategy if there's a vacancy for, uh, for a time that you really don't prefer to get in there? Because does that help you then um, in, in terms of, of uh, being well positioned if a time slot comes over? Ab absolutely. Okay. So if you want to increase the number of hours or sessions that you're taking in a nursery, being there will help you. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, because then you're not treated as... as in the same way as someone on the waiting list because your child's already in attendance. Um, but uh, really preparation, and, and to be honest with you, this is also some, an important message for parents um, in London in school preparation because the assessments for children in, in schools in London at three plus, four plus, depending on, on what school your child is going to, should not be traumatic for the child. In fact, uh, my experience with my own two children was when they were taken to assessments, I mentioned to them absolutely nothing in advance. And the morning of the day that they were going to see a school, we'd say, oh, we're going to have a look at school today and give you a chance to play with some other children and see if you like it. There was no expectation set on them. So that if they received an offer, great. If they didn't receive an offer, they weren't disappointing anybody. That's very important. Parents can get as stressed out as they like, and they will, because it is a stressful process, um, getting your child into the right school. But don't share that stress with your children. It's really important. Um, and there are people who get tutors in to help prepare their children. Um, most of the top schools that I know in, in London, in the London area, don't test to see if children can read. Don't test to see if they know their numbers. Some of these things might come out in assessment, but they're not gonna be the deciding factor. What they're really looking for are children who have self-confidence, who can express themselves, who can answer questions, who can stay focused on an attention, uh, on, on, a, um, on an activity for a period of time, and who can uh, solve puzzles. So, if you want to do something with your child at home for school preparation, do lots of puzzles, read lots of books with your children, um, but even with very young children, read to them every single night. And parents reading to children is the single most important thing that any parent can do to support a child through the education process. Great advice. Um, Bill, we've learned a lot uh, in this session on uh, early education um, and how to be a, a good buyer of uh, nursery services. Uh, and I want to thank you for being on Tamager Talk. Thank you very much.